Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. Well, welcome to another episode of the Who I Became podcast, where I interview leaders, uh, four leaders, and, and those that are very sophisticated like you, Mr. Jim Howard. Okay, <laughs> I like that. I'm sophisticated. That's a well, real one. <laughs> well, and it's good because quite often I don't know the guests when I do who I became, but, but me and you are friends, so I can play around with you a little bit. Yep, yep. Now, now Jim, well, I guess, go on. Uh, thanks for having me. I mean, I appreciate it. I know we've been trying to do this, so uh, I'm really excited about uh, helping you out on this. I think it's very important to get to learn the people that you're uh, dealing with in, in this type of environment. Yeah, and Jim, you know, and, and I joke around and we've been um, friends for a while, but I do want to sort of share a little bit about your your background and stuff that you've you've done, because there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, as I research my guests and talk to them, I find out that, that I don't know um, about them. But you were born and raised in, in Texas mm -hmm. and that you joined the Air Force at 18 years old. So you're a very, very young pup when you entered sort of um, uh, sort of a uniform life. And then at not 21, you joined the Norfolk Police Department where you served in Vice. I'm sure there's some interesting stories there. Um, narcotics, which for me being Br British is just, that's just true American policemen. You know, that is working in narcotics. It's, you know, they can't be called drugs, they're going to be narcotics. And then crisis negotiation as well, another interesting path that you took. And your last assignment with um, Norfolk Police Department was a, was a patrol sergeant. Uh, and then we might get into this in our conversation, but in 2001, you left to conduct worldwide security and executive protection at the World Bank in DC. But um, as your friend, I can say, I noticed you only stayed for a short amount of time. So we might have to talk about the transition between law enforcement and uh, working in the corporate world. But, but you then spent four years working with a public safety uh, software um, company. And then we're going to get a little bit about what you do now. And I know that your daughter heavily plays into your technical skills. So I don't know how on earth you spent four years at a software company, Jim, with, with your IT skills. Okay. <laughs> you see how this is going to go, aren't you? So it's going yeah, to go. I can. Yeah. <laughs> and then you moved to Florida where you, you got back into policing with Bel Air Police Department. Uh, and in around 2006, that's when you had the calling to start Trinity Security Allies, where you were executive director. Uh, and you now help churches all over the country with, with safety and security. And I know you still um, give back with your police career that you train at the local police academy. So despite all the jokes, um, you know, a very strong career. And thank you for joining me today, Jim. Well, thank you for having me, Sam. Really, thank you for having me. Now, now, I know there's two significant events that happened in your, your life, Jim, you know, because part of uh, who I became is to interview sort of thought leaders um, to talk about successes, failures, and just those things that have shaped and made them the person that they are today. And there's really two defining moments in your life. Is one is when you got um, carjacked, and that sort of later led you on a, a trajectory where you, you later joined the police. Uh, but also when you were 16 years old, uh, sadly, your father committed murder and killed the deacon of, of your church. So maybe we'll start with the, the killing of the deacon first and, and just sort of tell us a bit about that story. And I've got a few questions to, as to how that sort of um, shaped who you are today. Well, yeah, and um, to give you the background, I was the oldest of uh, uh, four boys. And my dad was a very, uh, in today's world, would be considered a very abusive father. Um, back then in the 60s and the early 70s, uh, it, it was kind of natural 
you would go to school and you would have a black eye or, you know, uh, uh, I remember one time I was getting ready to practice football and my coach pointed at my legs and said, did you want to talk about that? And there were some welts on my leg. And I just kind of looked at him and said, no, I did something wrong. And I got, you know, I got, uh, you know, punished by my dad. And he was just kind of like, oh, okay, well, if you ever want to talk about it, let me know. So uh, around 69, he started to take out his anger. Uh, he, he just was angry and took out his, started taking out his anger against my mom. And she started talking about probably leaving. And they went to a counselor who happened to be this deacon at the church. And um, they uh, separated. Uh, and, and so I don't think he liked the progress of what was going on. I'm not really for sure. He never really told me. But uh, uh, after a church service one Sunday night, uh, he stepped out of the church and shot and killed the deacon. I think he would have shot my mom if we had not have left just a couple of minutes early. So uh, that immediately changed our life. We went from uh, being kind of a big duck in a small pond in, in Glen Rose, Texas, to moving to a, a Pensacola, Florida, where I became, you know, a small fish in a, in a huge ocean. And I rebelled against God, rebelled against my mom, rebelled against just about everybody that was out there of any authority at all. I, I'm just thankful that I didn't get in any trouble, you know. Kind of had a music uh, background and, and was in the band and in the orchestra and in the uh, uh, chorus and things like that, which kept me out of trouble because you had to stay out of trouble in order to be in this. And I got to go on trips. So um, I made it through high school. Um, and But... Uh, you know, it was just one of these things where I never expected my dad to do what he did. But as I look at it today, that was just the way it was back then, it seemed like. If you, you know, it was almost like an eye for an eye. Uh, you take my wife and my, my sons who are going to be working the farm, and I'm going to punch you. But instead of punching, he, he shot and killed him. So um, these, are, these are things that we don't understand. I, I to this day... I know it's all God's plan, but I still don't understand it. I really don't. Um, yeah, and I guess at, so at 16 years old, Jim, when this traumatic event happens to you, I mean, you mentioned about, you know, when your dad became abusive and you had sort of welts on your legs and, you know, you went to school and and perhaps it was the era where, uh, you know, people didn't ask questions. But did you know at the time that you were in an abusive household? I mean, there was obviously clearly you, you knew that this wasn't normal, but what did you, how, what, what could you compare your life against at that point? Well, I mean, did I know that as an abusive household? I, I don't I didn't think so, because as I said, you know, when I would go to school and I have friends of mine be sitting there with a black eye and I would go, what happened to you? And I mouthed off of my dad and he hit me. So capital punishment was used a lot back in those time frames. I mean, when I look at it today, yeah, it was very abusive. I mean, when I had when Wendy and I had our first child. I, I told myself I'd never spank that child. And so, but that was because of how I was raised, how abusive it was. And um, I mean, he hit me with a water hose one time. I mean, he just, anything that he could get his hand on, he would hit you with it. And, you know, um, I, I think the night that it happened, uh, you know, with what we do today, somebody should have been talking to him. He sat in the middle of the church all by himself. And I, I and my mother were on one side, and one of my brothers were with the deacon and his son, because he had, had eight kids of his own, uh, was sitting with the deacon on, on the other side, and he was sitting in the middle of the church just stewing. So, you know, if somebody heard him stewing, if somebody would have walked up and said, hey, James, you know, you want to talk about this? How are you doing? 
it might have changed things. But we didn't think that way back then. We didn't think that way. Yeah, I don't know. I did an interview recently um, with a gentleman called Lester Young and a really uh, sort of inspirational story and transformational story that he actually committed murder when he was 19 years old. And he said something to me which was really profound. I hadn't thought about it that way, but he said that he didn't realise at the time when he shot and killed this this guy, how tied he was to the victim's family for the rest of his mm. life, you know. And and he went on to sort of tell me about how it sort of impacted not only his life but you know the the victim's family and how the two families really sort of you know joined together on that day. So I guess the, the, the sort of the deacon's family that you were sort of residing with at the time, I mean. What, what was that relationship like post your, your father taking their father away? Obviously, I know you said you moved to Florida, but was there any communication or did you just leave in the sort of middle of the night? How did, what did a few weeks after the murder look like? Well, I mean, you got to take in consideration, this is way before the age of internet, you know, email and things like that. So in order to write letters back and forth, you know, you have to put it, you know, in the post office and have Pony Express carry it. I mean, basically, you know. Yeah. But the thing that I thought, and this was something that haunted me for years, it wasn't until years later, I mean, many years later, that I was able to get with one of the siblings who was two years older than me. And I, I told her, I said, I was embarrassed for my father and thought that you would hate us, you know, because of what, what had happened. And she goes, it was never that way. In fact, she said, I can't tell you how many times we asked each other. I wonder what the Howard boys, because that's what we were called, the Howard boys are doing right now. You know, I wonder how they're doing. Because yeah. I found out later that some of the sons uh, ended up with drug addiction issues and alcoholism and things like that. Because when you lose a father, like really, I, I lost a father, a mentor, you know, um, a, a family. I mean, my whole support system, I lost everything. And I could have easily, I, I could have really easily seen myself going down a track that would have led me to something like that. But I, I'll keep saying this. God just said, no, I want you to stay here. And I didn't know that. I was mad at him. I didn't even want to talk to him. Some, when people would come to me and say, you know, God's his loving father, I would look at them and the only father I could think of was my earthly father. Your own father. So I don't even want to, you know, I was like, I, I, I can't even understand this. You know, this is too physical to me. Uh, you know, it's not spiritual. I couldn't get into the spiritual aspect of it. So every time I thought about it, it angered me even more. And like I said, when it wasn't just, I mean, I was 16 years old. He was about to give me a truck. And of course, the truck was going to be used like farm use, but he would let me have it so that I could do my thing, you know, like I could go out on the weekends or I could do these certain things. But I mean, I, I was, like I said, a big man on campus. Everybody knew me. Uh, you know, I had a class of 35 in my graduating class. If you could walk and chew gum at the same time, you played sports, all the sports, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I played- I guess you were raised in Texas, Jim. Huh? You were raised in Texas, I guess. I was raised in Texas. Yeah. You know, I played everything. And then when we moved to Pensacola, I couldn't compete because these guys that were in, I mean, my first year that I was there, I wasn't eligible to play, but I was eligible to practice. And these guys were, you know, they had college aspirations and were an incredible, you know, just the things that they did just blew my mind. And I knew that I, I, it, I'd have to hire a, a professional coach or something to get up to well, their level. 
And just picking up something that you said earlier, it's interesting. It ties into, you know, what that Lester Young said to me about the families become sort of intertwined posts that, you know, there was a lot of victims that day. And I guess there is in a murder, not just a person that was taken, which was this, this deacon. You know, these eight children, you said, you know, they lost their father and that changed the trajectory of some of those boys where they got into drugs and alcoholism and, and some other addictions. But, but also... You know, if you didn't know you're in an abusive um, home, you know, your father might not have been the best father to you, but he was also a father. You and your brothers also lost a, a father figure as well, because part of it is the generation. You know, you're talking about the 60s. Well, it was very common to give to give a child a slap in the, in the 60s yeah. and 70s, if not a bit more. I mean, that's for, you know, we can't judge people of yesterday on today's standards, you know, so it is very different. So, so were you and your brothers then? Did it change your relationship with each other when your father got sent to, to prison for this? Well, I, being the oldest, I, I, I resented everything. I mean, I resented everything. And so I kind of was the troubled child in the family. And because of that, it caused problems with my brothers and I. I mean, we weren't as close. Um, I, I knew as soon as I hit 18 years old, I was going to be out of the house. I mean, I just knew that. So I just had two years to go. And then I was going to be leaving. I did wait. I um, I did wait until I graduated from high school before I moved out. I turned eighteen my senior year, and I waited until then. But it was, uh, uh, you know, just because I was the constant pain in my mom's side. You know, I mean, it's a constant thorn. She was always trying to look forward. I and I, and I talk about this. She was always trying to look forward, and I was always living in the past. Whoa, whoa, pitiful me. And she was focused. She knew she had four boys to raise. She had to, you know, work. She worked three jobs. I, I want to go back to something about my dad. Yeah. I, I want to say one thing about my dad. My dad was one of the hardest working men I've ever met in my life. I mean, we lived on a farm and we had cattle, chicken. We had a garden, you know, all these things like that. My dad would get up at four o'clock every morning. We would, he would wake us up. We would go out and handle the livestock. He would go and carpool to General Dynamics in Fort Worth, which was 60 miles away. He would work eight hours there. He would be back at six o'clock, have dinner, go back out and start working in the farm and like stop at 10, go to bed and get up in the morning and do the same thing. Do it again. Yeah. And, and so I had, I mean, to me, my dad was a hero because he worked really hard for the family. I could see it. But he wasn't a, he, there was no emotion there at all. I, I, I tell it, I don't think I ever one time heard him say he was proud of us. Can never find it. I, I search my mind. I think about it. I, I was playing Pony League uh, uh, baseball one year. First game of the season, he took me to it. He was in his truck. He gets out of his, he pulled up into the field to where the front of the truck is, is pointing toward the field. And I thought, oh, he's going to sit here and watch me. No, he got out of the truck, got in the bed, unfolded a chair, and started reading a book. Didn't even watch. I was the first batter up and got a triple. Didn't even see it, you know? Didn't know anything about the game. I got back in the truck. He didn't say anything about the game. He didn't say, how was your game or anything like that. Just drove home. But that was just the way he was. And so, like I said, hardest working man I'd ever met in my life. And I think that's where our work ethics came from. And my mom was a very, uh, I mean, my mom believed in the golden rule, do unto others as you do. I mean, she taught that over and over and over again. And I think that's, you know, kind of how we were successful is because 
we just followed that golden rule. Yeah, and it's interesting what you said there. And I was only um, smiling about your dad reading the book because it's very much like a modern day parent on a phone, isn't it? I mean, even you're talking this could have been in the 60s, you're talking about this, Jim, but, you know, 2020 here now, that's like when I take my young son swimming and, and I try not to do it myself, but you look around and every parent's on their phone and they're looking down and then the kid's up there waving and the parent's not even even looking, you know. So it is, it's a, it's a challenge as a parent. But but those things affect us, don't they? As as children and as adults, we, we remember remember that stuff yeah and, and so what about your relationship with your with your mum then so obviously you know she was in a difficult relationship she's trying to flee the relationship um I know there's a bit more significance about actually why you'd left early early that day but I mean what was your relationship like with your mum post your dad um taking someone else's life I was um kind of her confidant. I had, um, I, 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 at 16 years old, I was five foot 11, like I am right now. I mean, I was just thin, you know, I was a beanpole. But um, uh, the, the, the Sunday that, uh, and we, we might've talked about it before. One Sunday, my parents got into a fight. I mean, a physical fight. And I jumped in and broke it up. And he stormed out of the house and he came back in later and took her aside. And so she kind of looked at me and said, we're going to church, you know, get ready. And so we got ready, went to church. On the way home, she stopped a mile away from the house and said, I'm not coming home. Go tell your dad. And of course, in my mind, I thought I'm dying. You know, he's going to kill me, you know. Yeah. And uh, I got home and told him and he was kind of like, go do your chores and get ready for bed. I mean, he didn't even phase him, didn't even phase him. And it wasn't until later I found out that during that fight, when I stepped in and he came back in, he had pulled her aside and said, if he ever does that again, I'm going to kill him. And so this is where I have questions with my mom. What were you thinking? You dropped me off to go tell him that you've left. And, and two hours ago, he threatened to kill me. So, you know, what, what, what am I doing here? So, after the incident happened, our relationship was very close before. After the, after the incident happened, because like I said, she was constantly focused on going forward and I was constantly living in the past. I mean, I miss my friends. I miss, you know, my, um, the incident happened September the 20th. I didn't turn 16 until October the 9th. So we were already in Florida when I turned 16. And 16th birthday, is a big birthday. The sweet 16 over here is that you have in the US. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But she just kind of like handed me a gift and I was upset. And she was like, why are you upset? Well, mom, I'm turning 16. She was like, get over it. You know, everybody turns 16. Now, the, you know, it's kind of yeah. like you want to have a party with all your friends. And at this time, I didn't know anybody. So, And it sounds like perhaps, um, you know, just from outside of looking in, but if you were the age you are now at a time when you had the wisdom you might have said to your mum that because it sounds like um there's some things there to unpack where you might have said hey you put me in a difficult position by sending me into the house to say hey dad you know um we're, we're leaving she was she wasn't setting you up for success she was setting you up for a potentially violent situation and i fully understand why a woman would do that because you know she she's live with the guy she knows he's going to get violent but for her son she put you in a very difficult situation so but jim howard of now might have sort of said something to his mum but as a 16 year old i'm sure that must have been hard uh, maybe that's what you've been holding on to well i 
I, I, I'll stop you right there. Uh, holding on to, yes, holding on to back then, yes, I, I probably was. There were other things that I have found out over in the last three years that I didn't know. I yeah. mean, newspaper articles that were found that I didn't even know existed. And it was a part of the court transcript. And when I read some of it, I probably would have lost my mind if, this, if I'd have known about it back then. I was already upset with some of the stuff that had happened. But, you know, it's, I, I keep going back to this. I truly do believe that this is how God works, not the killing of the doctor or the deacon, not, not that my dad went to jail, not that we went to Pensacola. These are sins of humans. You know, there, there's something going on there. But it's, it, it's, he'll take whatever happens and he'll use it to make you better. And so I, I'll give you a good example. You know, I, I know that I'll do anything for my children right now, period. I mean, when Jessica was born, that was the first time I understood unconditional love. I didn't know it before that. But when my, we had Jessica our first, I, I would die for that child. So he was preparing me all along. And I have, you know, like I said, I'll do anything for my kid. I'm going to make sure that they know that they are in a loving family, somebody that, that they can come to, somebody that they can talk to, different things like that. When I see them do something, I'll pull them aside and tell them, I'm very proud of you. I'm very proud of you. I mean, when my daughter makes good, both of them make great grades, yeah. I, I'm, I'm the first guy. Let's go out. Let's go out and celebrate. You know, because I want them to know that that we're there for them. Now, do they drive me crazy <laughs> all the time? Yeah. You know, I live in a house of hormones. I mean, it's you know, <laughs> so so. But I wouldn't trade it for the world. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Well, let me say, let me ask you this, then, Jim, because is this something you know, being the, the child of someone who's sort of taken someone else's life? Do do you think you get ever get over it? So I guess this is sort of like going back fifty years. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this something you ever get over? So I rephrase my earlier earlier question. Uh, it, it it is something that is always there. Do you get over it? Yes, but it is always there. There will be times when people talk about you know like they smell the 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 fresh cut grass and it reminds them of a day and yeah. time when they were kids doing stuff. There are things that will happen that will remind me. Just a quick flashback of the past. And, uh, you know, it, it does take you back. And you can't live that way. And that was what my mom was always trying to tell me. And, and trust me, later on in life, I was able to tell her that, you know, if you hadn't have been that way, I would have been a mess. I'd have been a mess. But she instilled in me that you can always do better. And so I, I, like I, said, I give a lot to her. Yeah, and there's an interesting piece about it. So, I mean, you got you had a very long and successful career in law enforcement. Um, you know, uh, detective, a sergeant, all the different um, things that you've done within narcotics and stuff. But what interests me when I um, sort of did some research uh, about you know the things that you've done and when you joined the police, and then that your your dad and his sentence going to me and you were speaking about this before, he received a very light sentence for his crime, and I just wondered. 
with you going into law enforcement, did it ever sort of change your view as a young man on criminal justice at that point in time when you're perhaps sort of 17, 18 year old and your your dad is sort of, the, the system is in his favour because it's a small town. Maybe tell the sort of the listeners a bit about your dad's trial, what he got um, sentenced for, and then perhaps if that changed your mind about the criminal justice system. I really thought, I mean, and we all thought when this got started, when the trial got started, that he would get life or death. I mean, Texas was very big in the death penalty back then. And it was premeditated murder, what they had charged him with. And in actuality, when I look at the case, when I look at it as a law enforcement officer, that's exactly what it was. He had planned on doing it. And I found out recently more information that said, you're absolutely right. That's what was going on. But it was, it was It was a small town, 1,540 people. The uh, jury trial that was picked or uh, of his peers, people that knew him, and they pointed a picture. And and, I mean, there's other things. Um, The the doctor that might, the uh, the deacon, he was a doctor of the town. He was kind of an outsider, had come into town and, and opened up this clinic, this hospital, and he and another doctor were running it. And they were kind of outsiders. They weren't a part of, you know, I don't, you know, the network that was going on during that time frame. And my dad, his grandfather lived there. His brother lived there. Uh, it, well, I'm sorry, his dad lived there. My grandfather lived there. His, his, my dad's brother lived there, my uncle. So they were well-known in the town. Everybody knew them. I mean, they were well-known. And they were well-liked. Everybody liked them. So when this happened... I was for sure he was going to get life. I mean, that's what everybody was telling us. Prosecuting attorney, we're getting life. We just know yeah. it. And then the day of the, the, the trial, the day of the, the reading, he was found um, uh, guilty by reason of insanity, uh, you know, which is, you know, when, when you truly study what that means, he was nowhere insane at all, you know. Yeah. But, but it's just, you know, he had this flash of a moment that caused him to do it. And, and so he got five years. He was sentenced to five years. He told me later, he says, I was the model citizen when I went to jail. I did exactly what they told me to do. So in 18 months, he was out. He was out. Yeah. You know, he, he had had a job with John Dynamics. He had worked with them for years. He wasn't one of these type of people that you would look at and go, every time we let you out of jail, you go and get into more trouble. He, he just, you know... I made a mistake. I mean, he never said that to me. I'm for sure there was a counselor there that he probably said it to, but he never said it to me, you know? And so, now, interestingly, so, you know, when you join the police, I mean, do you sort of look back and sort of smile at that and think, well, that was, uh, you know, that was just a sort of a, a system playing against the, the victim or, or what do you reflect on that now, having a career in law enforcement? I do feel sorry for the family, Okay. That, you know, the English, yeah. his name is Robert English. I do feel sorry for that family because in actuality, I mean, he was the breadwinner of the family. He was all these. I mean, I, it was just one of these things that when it happened, I was just, I was angry at my dad. I was angry at my mom. I was angry at God. I wasn't angry at Dr. English, you know, uh, the deacon. But, um, I mean, it did it affect my law enforcement? I, I learned very quickly. This is what I learned about law enforcement. And law enforcement, and listen, 
don't get me wrong. There were cases that I, I did take personal if they didn't go, had a guy put his dog on me and, and the judge dismissed it, said, you know, I'd put my dog on you too. Well, it's, a, it's another story for another day. Yeah. But um, um, I got to the point in my career that I learned that my job is to arrest. My job is also to put together the probable cause and everything necessary for the court case. So an attorney can walk in and win the case and not even have to think about it. But that's the end of my job. That's all. At, mine was the arrest. The trial was, a, was the, we had Commonwealth attorneys from Virginia. That was his job. And the judge's decision on things was his job. And there were many times I got to know a lot of the judges and they would call me up to desk. Did my decision hurt your, you know, hurt, bother you? And I would kind of look at them and go, no, because I charged them. I made an arrest. Yeah. You know, I do. Did I want a stiffer sentence on them? Sure. Would I have liked to see a stiffer? But if you give a person probation, maybe this gives that person that second chance and they'll try to be better. And a lot of times I already knew that I was going to run into them again. They were going to be doing the same thing. So, yeah. you know, it, it, most of them were that just that way. Well, but, Jim, that's interesting because it leads into my next question. But, you know, you, you know your dad kills someone. He gets, um, you know, the system swings in his favor. He gets five years. He plays the game. He's out in 18 months. Do you mind sharing a bit like what was the relationship like with your dad post his conviction? And, and had he really changed? I mean, how did that, how did that shape you when he came out of prison? Uh, at first, I didn't want to talk to him. And then um, my mom had this knack of, of uh, making the wives crazy. My, my mom <laughs> had this knack. And they would ask me about dad. And I had this thing that I had this guilt. I had this really this guilt. He was my dad, you know. And like I said, for the longest time, I admired this man. 15 years, I admired this guy. So when he finally contacted me one day, it was really kind of, it was really more arrogance than anything else. He just showed up in Norfolk one day. He was, you know, and he ran into a police officer and he said, my name is James Howard. I have three sons that are on your police department. And of course we all look like, I mean, most of yeah. us look like that, you know, and he produced identification and showed it. The officer that he talked to knew he was from Texas because he'd worked with one of my brothers and knew we were, okay. we were all known for being, we were cowboy fans in a red skin area. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, and so um, he said, Hey, here's his telephone number. Well, he called and he got the residence of my mom who lost her mind. And the next thing you know, we're at the hotel telling him the only place he can go is this hotel and leaving. Yeah. And so he and I sat down and started talking. And like I said, I re it was the guy I remembered when I was younger, but he was a lot calmer. It seemed like it seemed like. But like I said, he didn't change. My, my last interaction with him was, you know, he didn't change. He had an opportunity to change and raise two kids. And he didn't take the opportunity. And one of the kids uh, overdosed on drugs. And I kind of blame it on him. He didn't change. He didn't change one bit. It was all about my, it, my dad, it was all about my dad. That, that was his thing. That was his thing. 
So yeah, and it sounds like though you've taken so many different life lessons. I mean, there was a lot in there, but you've taken many life lessons and I can confirm that we're friends on Facebook and I see your feed is inundated with pictures of your, your daughters and stuff. And I saw one today, I think of her first car, which is like three or four in one of those little things. I mean, you are a doting father. So it seems that a negative situation really shaped you into a very positive um, father, leader, mentor, you know, and where you are today. So that's, you know, it's, it's, it's really good to, to hear you tell that story and see about the positives that came out from that. And, you know, as I start off by saying, there's two things that really sort of shaped you in that way. And then the second one was about when you were a carjacked one time, and that really led you into the, into the police. So maybe share a little bit about that story as to you know, how you ended up where, where you are today. Yeah, I graduated from high school. I was taking the summer off. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I, I was, I was kind of, getting ready to apply at the junior college there. Cause like I said, I, I, I had a music background and, um, and I played an instrument that everybody wanted. So, it, it, you know, it was kind of one of these things I felt I could get in. And I was uh, going on a picnic one day and, and stopped at a convenience store and a guy walked up and just sat in my car and I told him to get out. And he said, I have a gun. I'll kill you if you don't do what I tell you to do. I'd never been faced with this before. I said, where do you want to go? And took him and, we drove around for an hour. At one time, I thought he was going to kill me. We went to a vacant field. And, uh, you know, just things kept going my way. And then when I dropped him off, he told me, if I ever see you again, I'll kill you. And two to three days later, I saw him in my neighborhood again. I made a police report. Of course, the police looked at me like this was a drug deal gone bad because I had yeah. real long hair. It's the 70s. I'm driving a white Barracuda. You know, they're just thinking this is a drug deal gone bad, you know. And a couple of days later, I saw this guy again. And when I did, call, contacted uh, Scambia County. That's where we were. Uh, the deputy pulls up sideways into the parking lot, jumps out of his car and says, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I run over and jump in the car. We headed toward that area where he was standing. And he said, this guy's hit us like, you know, six times on uh, robbery to individuals, you know, and you're the yeah. only one that can uh, identify. We got there. It was a bus stop. He said, uh, I, I, I said to him, I said, this is a bus stop. He wasn't there anymore. He radios and says, stop all the buses. And so they call us and said, we got a bus up here, bring him up. We went up and the, the deputy says, okay, let's go identify him. And I was like, can't you get everybody off the bus, you know? Yeah. And let me stay in the car here, you know? And he, and he said, no, he says, I need you to identify him in the bus. And he says, I'm going to go in front of you and there's going to be a deputy behind you. I even made one more plea. I was like, don't you remember this part? I told you, he said he'd kill me. He's on me. Just don't worry about it. I got you. Covered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just need the witness. We just, yeah, we we just need the identification. I get on the bus and see him. He's kind of hiding. He's got his head down, pointed him out. They arrested him. He confessed. But after it was over with, I sit in the police car and the adrenaline, you know, that you feel when you're doing something like this, just was something I'd never felt before. I was so alive. And right then and there, I decided I had to do this. And, uh, that's where I went into the Air Force because I was 18 years old, told me to go into the Air Force. And when I got out, a little bit disappointed, uh, went to Virginia where my parents, my mom had remarried, and they were up in uh, Norfolk Bay. My stepfather was in the Navy and been transferred up there. And so uh, I went up there thinking I was going to go back to school. I was disappointed because uh, the Air Force wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And one night, uh, uh, an old Dominion police sergeant saw my jacket, saw that I'd been in security police and said, Hey, Norfolk is hiring right now. And I was unhappy with my life. That was it. That's all I needed to hear. 
And I went down and signed up and my mom stopped talking to me. She was so mad at me. <laughs> well, it's Not interesting. A policeman. She just was so worried about me getting hurt. Yeah. Being a policeman had never in my life, you know, we talked about being an army or, you know, we had the GI Joes, you know, yeah. we, we talked all the time about being fighter pilots, you know, cause that was kind of the agent we grew up in. But she was just shocked when I became a policeman. And then two years later, she kind of started talking to me again. Two years later, my brothers joined and it was all my fault. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, you, you'd let everyone to the dark side. You're the instigator here. Well, so she lived all, all the whole time that we were on the department with a scanner next to her bed and listened to calls all the time when we were working. She knew our schedule. She knew when we were out there. She well, was calling. Go ahead. No, I was saying, it's interesting you said, I want to go back to that time when you had to get on a bus because even at, you were 19 at this time, Jim, right? Or were you 18? I was still 18. I was 18. 18. To, to get on a bus full of like, you know, strangers, I'm imagining like, you know, a bus that holds 60 people, you've got to get on with, with a cop and say, this guy here robbed me. And he yeah. said, if I see you again, I'm, I'm going to kill you. You've got yeah. to get on. But, but it's interesting though, because I correlate that quite a lot to the difficult conversation you had to have with your dad when you were like 15 and a half, 16, we had to go to him and say, hey, dad, mum's not coming home. She's left you. So there's a lot of things in there, but that most probably gave you the strength to know 16-year-old wants to tell their father their mum's leaving them. And no 18-year-old wants to get on a bus with a man that's just said, I'm going to kill you if you identify me. But you, you did it. So it's fascinating as to maybe that was always your your path that you say the Lord was lead, leading you down. He... he Simon, he was. I mean, this was the path. I mean, like I said, I, I just, I truly went, you know, because after the, the shooting happened, I, I, I walked away from God. When I was with the Norfolk Police Department, I walked, I still was away from God. I had three marriages. Wendy was my third wife. And I was in the midst of almost losing them, Jessica and Wendy. And I started going back to church and said, God, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not, it's not working out here. I, I got to, you know, help me out. And my whole life changed. And I could take it right then and there and look at every single thing that had happened to me, that he was preparing me for what I was, what I, what I was facing. And he prepared me for the police department. It, 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 nowhere in my mind did I think about it, you know, um, you know, he prepared me to be a strong dad. He prepared me to be a, uh, when I, when I finally went back to him, he helped me become a better uh, uh, husband because I was terrible. I was terrible. I told Wendy when I first started dating her that I was an a-hole. I told her, I said, I'm telling you right now. And the first time she looked at me and called me an a-hole, I just looked at her and I said, I told, I told you. you. I told, I told you, you so. And she said, oh, I just thought you were being cute. You know, we like bad boys, you know? No, I wasn't a good person yeah. because it was, here was the thing. It was all about survival. Here, here's something that people will hear about later on. I was afraid of being abandoned. My mother had abandoned me on the side of the road. My dad abandoned me when he shot and killed the deacon. The deacon who was my mentor abandoned me. When we moved from Texas, because we didn't have the internet, things like that, all my support system abandoned me. So I went for years being afraid of being alone, that I would push people away to go find that other relationship. Because once we had a fight, in my mind, I was thinking to myself, it's over. You know, this relationship yeah. is done. And so 
it wasn't until I was sitting with a counselor and was telling the story about my mom dropping me off that it hit me hard. And he goes, what just happened there? I said, I don't know. And he says, you have a fear of being alone. And about the same time, our pastor was talking about, you're never alone. God is always with you. And I could see events that had happened in my life where he was with me. Car accident, too intoxicated, should have hit a, a telephone pole and tore the Corvette apart and missed it by bare inches, inches. He's, he's been, he's been, uh, when I was in narcotics, when I was in narcotics, I was working with a bad partner and it was getting bad and worse and everything like that. And an incident happened and that, and I was pulled away from that partner and put with a guy that I could trust and had, had a the rest of my time I was in narcotics was fantastic. And it's just all these little things that when we moved to Florida, Wendy had, uh, Wendy had left. She, she had taken Jessica. I was in DC when I was doing the, the executive protection stuff. Wendy had, and Jessica had left and we had a house that we were going to, we had rented, we were going to rent and she had called them and canceled it. Two days before we packed up and left, she uh, called the, the family that owned the house and said, oh, we've already, re we've already rented it. You know, sorry about that. We found this house in Trinity where a guy walked across the street. I mean, a beautiful house. Two days, we found it. A guy walks across the street and says, hey, I go to a church. Would you like to go with me? It's all yeah. him. It's all him. Well, and I was going to say, because one thing I want to touch on, as we sort of start to wrap up, is, you know, Trinity Security Allies, you're the executive director. You started to be working with churches, I think, since 2006. You've got a few years on, on me there, Jim, which is good. And um, I'm really intrigued as to um, how the Lord led you into security ministry, because, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, if you look to Dr. James Densley's statistics, you know, mass shootings are on the rise. And particularly, particularly in open door, soft target sorts of churches, you know, and you've got this fantastic story that you've lived real life experience of a church shooting, you know, so it's really powerful to see how those two worlds have now collided and, and you're helping church across the country and safety and security so so maybe tell us about trinity security trinity security allies if i can say it for you uh, what you're doing and, and how you got into security ministry it started when our church bought a piece of property and they came to me because they had a building fund drive that they were trying to raise money for the building and they came to me and said would you mind watching the money go from point a to point b and i was searching for a place to serve i'm not a good greeter i don't do well in children's ministry and so um, I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, I'd love to. And I said, you know, in 1999, uh, I was on the police department when Columbine happened. And we know we studied active shooter like that, you know, for years afterwards. And, and I was in D.C. 9-11. So I know about soft targets. I've got this down. And they just looked at me and said, we want the money go from point A to point B. Yeah, don't overcomplicate it, Jim. That was over, yeah, yeah, we appreciate your expertise, <laughs> but we're not interested. And so I just was like, okay, fine. I will, I will, uh, you know, I'll be a good steward. I'll watch the money go from point A to point B. We had a guy that came in that was circumventing his, uh, his uh, um, supervised visitation with his kids. He would wait until his wife, ex-wife would drop the kids off. She would go into the worship center. He would go into the children's ministry, take the kids out. When she came out to get the kids, they would say, Charles has got them. And she would lose her mind. She told us that there was a court order saying that he could not do this. And so we said, okay, fine, we'll, we'll talk to him. He kind of gave us an out. We were waiting for paperwork and um, he threatened his ex-in-laws 
And so we asked, we told him he couldn't come back. And the very next week, the uh, Pasco County, the, the sheriff's office came to us and said, hey, you know this guy? And we were like, yeah, we know him. And he goes, well, he killed his landlord last week. And uh, we're kind of wondering if, you know, you know, y'all might could help us out. And we were like, whoa, back up here. When did this happen? And they said last weekend, the weekend that he had threatened his, his ex-father-in-law. So he, he, was, he was going there, and uh, we just stopped him from probably doing it at the church, and he went home and took it out on his landlord. So after that, the church came to me and said, hey, would you mind setting up a real security team? You know, Actually, what you said, Jim, maybe that's not a bad idea. <laughs> maybe we do need more than money yeah. came from A to B. Yeah. yeah. Hey, yeah. you remember when you yeah. talked about soft targets? Let's talk yeah, about Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you tried not to have a grin on your face during this conversation oh, yeah, with the pastor, was, then, did yeah, you? Yeah, I was very humble. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah. Tina Arrow, I, I read her stuff and um, your stuff. I mean, I found a whole bunch of stuff out there that I realized that I wasn't the first guy out here doing this, but I was the first guy in the area. So I was still working with the Bel Air Police Department. I was their detective. Uh, it's... Um, the little town's an hour away, so it's a 50-hour week. You know, it's an hour there, eight hours, hour back. So it's a 50-hour week. And that's if I didn't work overtime because I worked a lot of overtime. And so I, I was called to North Carolina to do some training. And when I got back, Wendy looked at me and said, pick one. Pick one or the other. Be the top detective. You know, when you're the only detective in town, you're detective of the year and you're the worst yeah. detective of the year. It <laughs> depends on what day of the week it is, you know. And everything in the middle. <laughs> and yeah. And so she just kind of told me, she said, uh, make up your mind. What do you want to do? Do you want to be a detective or do you want to be, uh, you know, working with churches? And I said, I, I if this is a choice, you know which one I'm going to take. And she said, go for it. And she was behind me, which was really, truly a leap of faith, because like three months before that, she, every time I spoke about it, she went into a panic mode because We've had to trust on God. We've, we've had to totally trust on him to make sure that all of our bills get paid, you know? And so he's been unbelievable to us. I mean, we're not, I'm not, I'm not you know, rich and, you know, living in a, you know, mansion, but I am living in a mansion. I mean, compared to, you know, what my family had and all those things like that. I, I'm living in a mansion compared to what I grew up in, every house that I ever was around. So I, I'm, and, and like I said, every month he takes care of us. So I haven't looked back, haven't looked back. Well, and Jim, I know, you know, we take something which is you know, sort of life-changing as a 16-year-old, you know, your career in law enforcement. I know there's many men's groups that you lead, there's many um, security ministry groups that you lead. You know, you've got Trinity Security Allies. You know, I count on you, on you as a friend, which is why I can joke with you a little bit of a start of it, you know, but, but there's a lot that you do. So I'm very grateful for you sharing your your story with us. So so let's end with it. How can people get hold of you if they want to learn more about Trinity Security Allies and the work that you do? TrinitySecurityAllies.com. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, Trinity Security Allies. They can get in touch with us there. Uh, my partner is my wife, you know, my beautiful wife, Wendy. Uh, she helps me with the ministry. And um, they can call me. Uh, the number is 727-267-0590. I throw it out there. Anybody wants to call, I'll be more than happy to. Jim, you're lucky I don't have hundreds of thousands of followers here because your, your phone might be ringing off the hook tonight. But... There you go. I appreciate it. And I'll put your details in the, sh in the show notes. So Jim Howard of Trinity Security Allies, thank you for joining me today on Who I Became. Simon, thanks for having me, brother. It was a really good time.
Thank you. God bless. Thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast. Thank you.